You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. say it's very good to be back with you. Oh, I'm supposed to put this microphone on, aren't I? It's been a while, right? I want to thank the elders for uh, all the assistance that they rendered the last several months in, in uh, handling the pulpit and Sunday school. I want to especially thank Dr. Will Johnston for his labors in the Word with you, and thank you to the members of the congregation uh, for your patience while I was on sabbatical. This morning we're going to read now from the book of Hebrews. If you're physically able to do so, please stand. We're going to read verses 6 through 13 of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's most holy word. Please be seated. God, your ways are higher than our ways. And sometimes in the scriptures you present us with tensions and you leave them there and force us to wrestle with them. Like eternal security and the warning passages we find in Hebrews. God, help us to trust the mind of Christ. Help us to know that this is your word. Lord, I pray that the word would fall on each heart that is here that those who don't know you would see that they are in grave peril because your wrath is coming upon the world to judge sin. That those of us who are turning away from you or spiritually drifting away from you would be shaken from our complacency, that we would come to our senses and return as the prodigal did to his father. Lord, I can preach this message, but only your spirit can bring the conviction that is necessary. And so, Lord, I preach this not by will or might or strength, but by your spirit. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
there's a scene that's common in scary movies. A lot of people are together having a social event and they hear a creepy noise or they see something unusual. They get scared and they all retreat to a nice, well-lit place and enjoy safety in numbers, maybe in a panic room or a barn. And after a few minutes there together, it seems like the danger has passed outside. Or maybe one of the people starts to say, well, you know, maybe there really wasn't any danger to begin with. So he decides he's going to go outside and check things out. And he says, I'll be right back. And of course, as you watch the movie, you start screaming, no, don't do it. Because you know, as soon as he goes outside, it isn't going to end very well for him or anybody else for the rest of the movie. But out he goes anyway. That's what I kept thinking about again and again this week as I thought about the heart of the book of Hebrews. Because the Bible speaks about the Lord Jesus and his gospel as a place of infinite safety. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. That is the wrath of God which is coming upon sin. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says, The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. There is tremendous security and peace in the Lord for those who believe, who repent and cast ourselves on the mercy of God that is found in Jesus because he is God and man, because he died for our sins and rose again. And yet while believers enjoy this privileged position of being alongside God in Christ, nevertheless, at times we all feel a common temptation As the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the the God I love. The world, the flesh, and the devil beckon us. Come outside. Depart from the place of safety. They whisper to us, sin, it's not really a big deal. Or, you know, God, he's not really there. The Bible, it's probably not totally true, right? Or they'll say, hey, here's another spirituality or doctrine that will enlighten you. Or you could be more effective or faithful for Jesus if you become more relatable and just live more and more like the world. And all these things are lies designed to draw us from Christ. And these lies are not new. And we know that. Because the New Testament writers 2,000 years ago talk about the things that lead professing Christians away that we can see in our friends and families and churches even now. The New Testament writers were constantly concerned about their readers falling away into unrepentant sin, unbelief, false doctrine, or worldliness. Because believing friends, we are locked in a spiritual battle with the enemies of God And their desire is to stumble us into repudiating our faith. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 4. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Satan tempted the Thessalonians, trying to get them to abandon the faith. 
And Paul says if that effort succeeded, it would make his ministry among them worthless. His efforts among them would not have done him any good or them any good. Because the New Testament is clear that a faith that ultimately falls away, that utterly forsakes Christ, is no true saving faith at all. And the New Testament writers were clear about this because they saw it in their own day and age again and again. People drawn away by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so they have this burden to consistently warn God's people not to fall away. So when Paul finds out that some churches he started in Galatia that previously were filled with people that professed Christ decided, oh, I don't need Jesus anymore. What I really need is Judaism. Here's what he says, Galatians 5 verse 2. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Wow. He says in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That's some strong language, isn't it? Peter says the same thing, 2 Peter 2.20. If after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Likewise, John says, 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. People demonstrated that they were not truly born again because they forsook the faith. Now friends, each of these apostles believed in the doctrine of eternal security as we should. The true believer will never be lost. Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Or Paul says, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal security is true. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament writers still found it necessary to repeatedly warn us strongly that there is something that looks like true faith, which ultimately shows it is not true faith because it falls away. Second John 9 says, Everyone who goes on ahead, that is, they are leaving, and does not abide, remain in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever remains in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. We don't want to be lured away from the place of safety. We want to stay with the true gospel because there we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And this is why the book of Hebrews was written. Because its author was worried that his readers were in danger of departing the faith. And he wants to urge them through theological instruction, exhortation, encouragement, and warning not to fall away. Because departing this place of safety is a lot worse than anything that happens in a horror movie. The outcome of deserting the mighty refuge of the gospel is, according to Hebrews 10.27, a fearful expectation of judgment 
and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And the author of the Hebrews loves his readers, and he doesn't want that to happen to them. Apostasy is heartbreaking. In the last few years, I've personally known men in the ministry who forsook the faith for adultery, for homosexuality, or to profess Catholicism, a few of them to profess Catholicism. It's heartbreaking. Many of us know the heartbreak of seeing family members or friends who once professed Christ renounce their faith. Or we see it with church members. It's heartbreaking. Especially when we believe what the Bible says about apostasy. The stakes are just so high. Our author knows that pain. And so this book is his answer. It is a pastoral plea for people that he loves to remain in the safe place with Jesus. Now today we're going to start a study in this book of Hebrews. And my goal here is to introduce you to this book so that you'll understand the big picture. And today we're going to ask four questions. First, what is the book of Hebrews? Second, why was Hebrews written? Third, what is Hebrews about? And fourth, how is Hebrews beneficial to us? So we'll start with our first point, which is what is the book of Hebrews? The King James Bible of 1611 gives this book's title as the Epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. And that is how this book was understood for much of Christian history. As an epistle that is a letter written by Paul to one or more churches of uh, entirely Jewish Christians. Now, this understanding of Hebrews was held pretty much uniformly from about the year 350 until the Reformation. It was not the way the book was uniformly understood in the first centuries, and I think you'd be hard-pressed today to find any scholar, believing or unbelieving, that would be okay with that title in its entirety today. For starters, it's not clear that Hebrews is a letter. If you've got a Bible, turn to Hebrews. Actually, turn to Philemon, like the page before Hebrews. And you'll know from like last week or your own Bible study, most New Testament books are letters. And like other ancient letters, they follow a standard format. And we see this at, at the start of Philemon last week. First, you've got the names of the authors. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Second, you've got the names of the recipients, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier in the church in your house. And then third, there's a greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got this kind of a format in pretty much all ancient letters from this part of the world. In Hebrews, though, we don't find any of these things up front. Instead, we read Hebrews 1.1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. There's no name of the author or the audience. It's not even a greeting. He doesn't know howdy. He just jumps right in. And so based on that, we might say, well, maybe this is not a letter. But turn to the very last page of Hebrews. And we find this, Hebrews 13, 23. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. That does sound like the way New Testament letters end, right? Personal greetings and travel plans. So while Hebrews lacks the formal characteristics of a letter at the beginning, the conclusion has the marks of a letter. So how should we understand this document? Our author says this in chapter 13, verse 22. 
I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. That's how our author sees this book. It is a word of exhortation. It's like a sermon. But you know, ordinarily when someone puts together a sermon, you don't just write it, you preach it in front of people. Well, Hebrews, it seems a little different. This is a sermon that was written out by our author in one place and was carried to another place by somebody, and that guy preached it when he got where he was going. I think this is helpful for us when we study Hebrews. This is not like the more personal letters we find elsewhere in the Bible. This book's a lot like a sermon. It's going to take passages from the Old Testament, especially Psalm 110, but other passages too. It's going to explain them in light of Christ and apply those texts to the readers. I think that's how we should understand this book. Now, who's the author? Um... He doesn't identify himself, so this question has puzzled readers since the second century. Now, the truth is, we don't know. Early in church history, opinions were divided. Many thought Paul wrote Hebrews, many thought he didn't. A few centuries later, for historical and primarily apologetic reasons, Christians seemed to agree it was easiest to just say Paul wrote it. But during the Reformation, this question was reopened because during the Reformation, the Bible began to be studied deeply for the first time in centuries, and it began to be translated. And as Luther translated the Bible into German, he noticed that the Greek in Hebrews was different than the Greek style and vocabulary used by Paul in his letters. Paul's Greek is, is grammatically correct, it's decent, but it's not like the sophisticated, polished, literary Greek we get in Hebrews. So Luther suggested somebody other than Paul wrote it. Apollos, the uh, well-versed preacher uh, who knew the Old Testament well that we read about in Acts 18. Calvin suggested that perhaps Luke was the author because Luke's Greek is the only Greek that's nearly the quality of the work in Hebrews. Many other candidates have been suggested. Barnabas, Paul's early missionary partner. Aquila and Priscilla who taught Apollos. Clement of Rome, the early church leader, many, many other candidates. But while many names have been floated, we don't know. Our author doesn't give us much data to work with. Most of the candidates proposed have not left us writing samples to compare with this book, and those who did seem to read differently than what we find here. But while we can't know definitively who wrote Hebrews, I think we can, with a fair degree of certainty, identify two people who did not write Hebrews. First is Timothy, because Hebrews 13.23 says that our author considered Timothy his associate. So Timothy did not write this book. I also would argue strongly that Paul didn't write this book either, and not just for literary reasons. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. He says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So our author says Jesus preached the gospel first, and he was heard by a group of people, presumably the apostles. And then our author says that they, those who heard, attested the gospel to us, to the author and his readers. This suggests the author of this book was not himself an apostle, but that he came to faith through the preaching of an apostle. This is totally different than the way that Paul describes his own conversion in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. 
where he, was, he says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says he got the gospel from Jesus directly, not through anybody, especially there, he argues, especially not from the apostles. This is totally different than how the author talks about himself in Hebrews 2. So I think we must conclude that Paul is not the author. But our author seems to have been influenced by Paul's theology. He personally knew Timothy. He was probably part of Paul's inner circle, like other New Testament writers, Luke and Mark. But beyond that, we cannot say any more with certainty. Ultimately, we must agree with the early writer Origen, who said about the authorship of Hebrews, only God knows. But... We can say that God stands behind this book as the capital A author of Hebrews. That's an idea we're going to see in this book. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. So we shouldn't be troubled that we don't know who wrote this, because whoever it was, his words were God's words. And the truths and exhortations in this book originated in the mind of the Almighty. Now, who is this book written to? The title to the Hebrews is very old. What's it mean? Well, it was written to to one or more churches of professing Christians. We know that because our author keeps telling them, hold on to your faith. But who or where they were, we don't know. Our author assumes his audience has a good knowledge of the Old Testament, so maybe they do have a Jewish background. But he quotes the Old Testament not from the Hebrew, but from the Greek translation, the Septuagint. So they would be outside Judea, most likely. And that means that whatever these churches were, there was probably a mix of Jewish and Gentile believers. All right, so that's all of the background. Now let's move on now to the second question, why was Hebrews written? Our author has knowledge of what's going on in these churches he's writing to. He knows their history. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. I would urge you to follow along in the Bible. It will make this a lot, a lot easier. Hebrews 10, 32, he says, Recall the former days... When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He says, in former times, you guys were really faithful. You got heavily persecuted, but you endured because you trusted Christ. And not only were they faithful in the past, they continued being faithful in many ways in the present. Hebrews 6, verse 9. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Here in Hebrews 6, we see the original audience is still evidencing salvation in many ways, chiefly through their loving service for their brothers and sisters in Christ. But while they have a heritage of godliness in the past and an ongoing commitment to service in the present, our author is worried about their future. He sees things that give him concern and he perceives danger. And he is worried that as persecution intensifies, they may fall away. Or that when heresy tempts them, they may be, as he says in chapter 13, verse 9, led away by various and diverse teachings. Why is he worried? Any church 
that endured persecution in the past and seems to be serving, maybe we'd say that's a healthy church, right? Why does he see vulnerability? First, because he detects that his readers are not where they need to be spiritually. They've been professing Christ for some time, but they're still way too immature for where they ought to be. Hebrews 5.11, he says, You have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. It's pretty in your face, right? More than immaturity, he says, you're also beset with weakness and frailty. Hebrews 12, 12. Lift up your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And all of this weakness and immaturity isn't because external forces are bearing down on them. No, it's because of spiritual malaise and inattentiveness within the church. That's why he warns in Hebrews 6.11, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. At one time they evidenced spiritual vigor, now, he uses a Greek word that speaks of lethargy, often of laziness, almost always of neglect. This is a significant part of his warning in chapter 2. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He is concerned that in this church there is a growing neglect and disinterest in the gospel and the things of Christ. That's why he's writing to them. He is concerned that there is spiritual drift. Drift is an interesting word, right? Makes us think of like a boat out there on the water, being pushed around by the currents, not in control of its path, being spirited away by external forces. Our author thinks this is the spiritual condition of some of his readers. And drift leads to danger. And he knows that because their drift has caused them to waver. That's why he says in 1023, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. If we are not steadfastly anchored to Christ, we will drift, we will waver. Our personal conviction and our dedication about the reality of the things of God will begin to erode. We will make personal compromises. We will be tripped up by sin and experience the ruin that sin produces in our lives. That's why our author says in chapter 12, verse 1, let us lay aside the sin which clings so closely. Sin is always crouching at the door, looking for an opportunity to destroy you. And spiritual drift exposes us to its destructive power. Friends, today know that spiritual drift is not only possible, it is very common. It is the direct result of the neglect of the things of God in our lives. And none of us are immune to this. I have been reflecting on this in my own life over the last few weeks. There are dangers of spiritual drift. There are dangers when our spiritual life stops being something we intentionally cultivate and starts being something we coast upon or assume. Where does that lead? 
No, we're good. Friends, like that boat at sea, our spiritual lives are always in motion. And either we are drawing near to God, as Hebrews 7 says, or we're going somewhere else away from Him, being blown about by the currents of the world system, blown about by every wind of doctrine, Paul says in Ephesians 4. Friend, today, what course is your life on? Now, maybe you're here and you're like, I don't believe in Christ. I I don't care about any of this. I'm an unbeliever. Everybody knows it. I'm the captain of my fate. Friend, if Jesus is not your Lord, i got to tell you, you are heading for eternal disaster. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once and then judgment. And Hebrews 10.27 says, The end of a judgment for any unbeliever is a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If this is you, friend, you are on a catastrophic path. Turn from your life of sin. Cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. He died for your sins. He is ruling and reigning today. He is alive. Salvation is available only in Him. I beg you, turn from your sin and fall on Christ. Now, maybe today you're here and you do claim Christ, but you say, yeah, I see spiritual drift. Maybe as we're talking, you're like, I know there's sin in my life. I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. Or maybe you're beset by doubts about the faith. Or maybe you claim Christ, but you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. I got my fire insurance, but now I'm going to live it up because I prayed a prayer once. Man, that's really dangerous. That's not true conversion. Maybe you become neglectful of your spiritual life because you just don't care about the things or people of God. Even though this book says in chapter 4, verse 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace in time of need. Maybe you're not as constant or fervent in prayer like you used to be. Maybe your spiritual life's never been marked by prayerfulness. Even though this book says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, maybe you come to church to take a nap during the sermon. Maybe you just don't care about God's word anymore. But Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. But you'd rather give your mind to other stuff. Work, sports, personal finance, politics, the entertainment offered by 50 different streaming services at your fingertips. I'm not saying all those things are bad, but what I am saying is if we neglect God's word and we only ever intake the stuff of the world, We're going to wind up ruminating on the counsel of the wicked and the way of sinners a lot. And we're not going to look like the tree in Psalm 1 who's planted by streams of water and fruitful and enduring uh, difficult times. Your life's going to wind up looking like the chaff that the wind drives away. And that is spiritual drift. Is this you, friend? Where it is, you or me, we've got a problem. We've got to fight against it because the stakes are just too high. Because where does drift lead if it's not halted? Friends, we all drift sometime. But our author was worried that some of his readers might drift to the point where they no longer held any meaningful confidence in Christ. That their drifting away would become a falling away. That this drift would prove not just to be the backsliding of a tripped up Christian who later came to his senses and went back to where he needed to through repentance. But this this might prove to be apostasy. 
the first step of repudiating the faith, marking someone as having never really belonged to Christ in the first place. That's why three times in this book our author says something like, hold fast your confession, because he is afraid of, of this prospect that some of his readers might fall away. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And he uses this language of falling away again in the fearful warning of chapter 6 where he says its end is to be burned. Much of this book is deeply theological. But the burden of Hebrews... The application the author wanted his readers to take is found in the warning passages when he says again and again, don't fall away from Christ. Draw near to God instead. Now again, understand this book is not denying eternal security. On the contrary, this book tells us that Jesus, chapter 5, verse 9, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Chapter 9, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 7, 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Eternal security is true, friends. But this book tells us, and in those passages, this book tells us ultimately, it's not us who secures ourselves. It's not like, oh, I'm going to white knuckle it and make it through. Ultimately, it's God through Jesus who secures his people. If it was up to us, we'd all blow it, right? God keeps us from stumbling, Jude says. And yet, this author and the other authors of the New Testament find it necessary and vital to still say, and don't fall away, because apostasy leads to eternal condemnation. And I think they give us these warnings, friends, because these warnings are tools that God uses to help maintain his people in the faith and keep us from falling away. We read the warnings and say, I need to check the drift that's going on in my life. And that's, I think, why this book was written, to urge the readers not to fall away. But what are they in danger of falling into? Look at chapter 13, verse 13. He says, let us go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Our author's worried that because of their spiritual neglect and weakness, his readers are going to crack because of the anti-Christian hostility of their day. And to avoid suffering, those in the church might try to increasingly accommodate their persecutors by becoming less distinctively Christian, by retreating to a form of worship that the Romans were okay with and that the Jews insisted upon, the practice of what we're going to call Old Covenant Judaism the Jewish religion initiated by God at Mount Sinai. We know this is what our author is worried about because the crux of his theological argument is all about uh, the, the, the contrast between Jesus and Old Covenant Judaism. And this now brings us to our third point. What is this book about? And in this book, what our author is trying to do is prove that Jesus is absolutely superior to every aspect of Old Covenant Judaism. And every aspect of Old Covenant Judaism is inferior to Jesus and incomplete without him. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus says in Matthew eleven thirty two, 32, All the prophets and law prophesied. Every aspect of Old Covenant Judaism was prophetic. It all anticipated the coming of Jesus. And now that he has come, 
And now that he's died on the cross, our author is going to argue the entirety of the Old Covenant, Judaism, and all Jewish religion stands complete, fulfilled, and concluded. And so it makes no sense for someone who professes Christ to retreat back into Old Covenant Judaism because that is leaving the complete for the partial. It is rejecting the perfect for the unfinished. Okay, that is the essence of the theology of this book. Now, because so much of this book is contrasting Jesus and Old Covenant Judaism, I think I've got to say a few things now about Old Covenant Judaism so we can understand where this book's going to go. When we talk about the Old Covenant, we're talking about the relationship between God and Israel that started at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, when God gave Israel his law. And God said the purpose of the law in Exodus 19 was to make Israel a distinct nation that uniquely reflected him before all the earth. And to facilitate this, God gave Israel the land of Canaan, the promised land. And they could occupy it so long as they kept God's law. But the occupancy of the land was conditional. Leviticus 25, 23, God says, the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. The land belonged to God. He never surrendered his ownership of it. But Israel could live there if they kept his law. And as they obeyed, God promised to give them great material blessing. Deuteronomy 28, God says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, the Lord will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Blessed shall you be in the city and the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle. The Old Covenant promised material blessings for the obedient. This is different today. Today we're under the new covenant. There is no promise of material blessing for us. We have access to every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1 says. But the old covenant promised material blessings to Israel if they obeyed. But God said if you don't obey, if you rebel against the law, terrible judgments will fall on you. Disease, drought, defeat, and ultimately forfeiture of the land. Leviticus 20, 22 says, You shall keep all my statutes and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. So the essence of Old Covenant Judaism is Israel must keep God's law to retain possession of the land, to enjoy God's blessings and show his goodness to the world. Now when we think about the law, we tend to think about the Ten Commandments, right? And the law decreed those Ten Commandments and a bunch of other laws about personal ethics and interpersonal conduct. But in truth, a much larger percentage of the law has to do with how God was worshipped ceremonially than anything about personal ethics. Between Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, interpersonal commands take up about six and a half chapters. But commands related to the sanctuary, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system take up something like 43 chapters. So no wonder the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.11, under the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law. The foundation of Old Covenant Judaism was the priesthood and its activities. You say, well, what's that? Okay. What Israel had were priests, and they represented people to God. And what that meant was they would offer sacrifices on behalf of people to God. They did so at the sanctuary. Originally, the sanctuary was a tent called the tabernacle. Later, that was replaced by a building called the temple. The pattern for these structures, the temple or the tabernacle, Hebrews is going to tell us, actually came from God. 
And the way that they were designed reflects something of the dominion of God in heaven. At the heart of the sanctuary was the innermost room, the Holy of Holies. In the earliest days, this room was occupied by the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God said he would uniquely manifest his presence on earth to dwell among his people. But by the time Hebrews was written, God's glory had left the temple and the Ark was lost. So the Holy of Holies was just an empty room. But the law was still observed, that this room was blocked from access by a thick curtain. It could only be entered one day a year by one person, the high priest, only if he carried the blood of a sacrificed animal. Outside the Holy of Holies was the holy place. Here's where the priests, the male descendants from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron, here's where they served by maintaining the holy object. The closest that non-priestly, able-bodied Jewish men could come was the sacrificial altar outside the sanctuary in the courtyard. By the time Hebrews was written, the temple was configured so that Jewish women could not even get that close, and Gentiles and disabled Jews were required to be very far away from the temple. Now, when sacrifices were brought to the sanctuary, they were taken to the altar, and the priests would ensure that the required elements for the sacrifices defined in Leviticus were observed. Most were animal sacrifices. Some were sacrifices of agricultural produce. They would prepare the sacrifice in the required manner, burn it on the altar either totally or until it was cooked and then distribute it to the people that Leviticus said could eat it, either the priests or the people bringing the sacrifice. And this was the worship of God under the Old Testament economy. For the average Israelite, this is how they understood worship. It wasn't coming to church on a Sunday and singing some songs and hearing a sermon. They brought an animal to the sanctuary that was killed through a priest. Maybe once in a while they got to gather congregationally and hear some singing. Maybe they could sing occasionally. Maybe they'd hear God's word read. And they'd have to do their best to remember all of it until they sinned and go back and offer another sacrificial animal. The priests also stayed busy. Leviticus and Numbers say there were daily sacrifices they had to offer for the whole country and sacrifices to, to mark the beginning of a month and a litany of sacrifices each holiday in addition to offering every sacrifice brought by every individual Israelite all the time. And they still had to maintain the altars and all of the holy objects inside the temple. And all of this the fire of the altar and the gushing of the blood of animals and the smoke of burning flesh and the smell of incense was the heartbeat of Old Testament worship. This may sound very strange to us. I can assure you the freedom and worship we enjoy today would look very strange to them. But that's because in Jesus things have changed. And that's what Hebrews argues. Jesus has ended the old covenant system. What we have in him is infinitely better than every part of that old system. So we should not leave Christianity to return to old covenant Judaism. And so at the beginning of chapter 1, our author is going to argue, Jesus is better than the revelation God gave to ancient Israel through the prophets. Not that the Old Testament is bad. It's not. It's great. But Jesus is better. Because he is the supreme disclosure of God. He is God in human flesh. In chapters 1 and 2, our author argues Jesus is better than the law, which was given to Moses by the angels. 
The law was good and holy. Jesus is better. And if God took his law so seriously that he punished those who disobeyed with death, how much more seriously does God take his superior revelation in the Son? How much more seriously should we take that revelation? In chapters 3 and 4, our author says Jesus is better than the rest available in Old Covenant Judaism. The rest of the Sabbath day. Or the rest of living in the promised land and getting all those material blessings. That's nice, but in Jesus is a better eternal rest for those who trust in him. In chapters 5 through 7, our author says Jesus is better than the Old Testament priests. Because Jesus is a high priest who intercedes for us not in an empty room in a temple building. He stands before the very throne of God above. And unlike human priests, he is without sin. And he lives forever, so he is always ministering for us. And he offers a better sacrifice than all that animal blood, his own sinless life. And he grants us direct access to the throne of God through himself as our high priest, which is way better than anything in Old Covenant Judaism. Chapters 8 through 10, our author argues that Jesus is the foundation of a better covenant than the Old Covenant. The Old Testament said there would be a new covenant someday. Our author says that's founded on Jesus, and he secures for us better promises than anything in the Old Covenant because he gives us eternal inher- an eternal inheritance. And then in chapters 10 to 13, our author says, because of who Jesus is and what he has done, his readers should look to Jesus and his example and the example of faithful believers from the Old Testament who were just like the people that our author is writing to. They lived lives of hardship and persecution. But Jesus and the Old Testament saints didn't fall away. They lived by faith. They didn't shrink back in fear. They persevered to the end. So they inherit the promises of God. And so our author says, don't you drift away. Don't fall back into Judaism. Instead, draw near to God through Christ and live as God's faithful people. And thus he gives the famous exhortations to regularly meet together with God's people so that we can encourage each other as the end approaches. To strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. To live lives of godliness and peace, which mark true conversion, and not bitterness and sexual immorality, which does not mark true conversion. That is what this book is about. Now this brings us to our last question, which is how is Hebrews beneficial to us here today? You just heard me talk about what's in this book. Maybe you think, hey, I'm not going to fall away into Judaism. Maybe this study is not going to be useful for me. Well, I sure hope you're not tempted to become an apostate by going back into Judaism. But first, I want to tell you that this danger does still exist today in two forms. First, as you know, many Christians today are interested in the Old Testament and the things of Israel. And there's nothing wrong with that. But this interest has caused some people to draw the very wrong conclusion That what is explicitly Jewish is inherently closer to God than what is not. And so some who profess Christ have forsaken worship that is more explicitly Christian to adopt forms of worship found in Old Testament Judaism. I'm talking here about Messianic Jewish congregations, which, by the way, are mostly comprised of Gentiles 
who fall into the very sort of thing Hebrews is talking about, forsaking the new and returning to the old. There's an even more extreme form of this with ministries that are frankly heretical that advocate what they call the Hebrew roots of Christianity. I've known people that have fallen into this. What they're told is, what God wants is for you to keep the Old Testament law. Keep the Sabbath, just like a Jew in the Old Testament. And that's the Judaizing heresy that Galatians condemns. Friends, don't fall into this sort of thing. This danger also exists today in a second way, in the heretical doctrine of theonomy, which is increasingly popular among those writers who advocate dominionism and Christian nationalism who advocate that Christians should seize the levers of political power in every country, including ours, and enact the Old Testament law as our nation's form of government. Friends, America is not Israel. We have no covenant with God like Israel did. We have no promised land that is inextricably connected to the law as Israel did. Theonomy and Christian nationalism are expressions of biblical illiteracy. They totally misunderstand the nature and transitoriness of the Old Covenant. And I solemnly warn you against those who would push a return to Old Testament Judaism as a political cause for Christians. But is this the only relevance this book has for our lives? No. Hebrews speaks to all of us, and what it says is this. Don't fall away. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than what? Jesus is better than anything that would lure you away from him. Sin offers false pleasure. Jesus is better. Psalm 16 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The joy of being with Jesus is vastly better than every false pleasure of sin. False doctrine offers answers. But Jesus is better. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In Jesus alone is truth and salvation and life. That is infinitely better than the empty promise of false demonic spiritualities. Worldliness offers apparent security from the scrutiny of unbelievers and rest from the persecution that dogs Christians. Maybe we think, you know, man, life would just be easier at work or with my family, if I just stopped seeming overtly Christian. Maybe I can have a peaceful Thanksgiving this week if I don't talk about the faith. Or if I pretend I'm okay with my loved one's sin that I really need to talk about. But man, Jesus is better than whatever you think you're getting by moving away from him. Because Jesus gives us true security, true peace, ultimate expression of family, and a better rest than anything this world can offer. And friend, I, I tell you, repudiating Jesus doesn't get you anything, but it risks everything. Because in Matthew 10, 33, Jesus says, Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And Mark 8, 36 says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Maybe today you hear this and you say, Well, I really don't feel like I'm falling away. Okay, good. Are there aspects of your life evidencing spiritual drift? Prayerlessness. A lack of interest in God's word. Maybe like Hebrews 10 says, you've been neglecting to meet together with other believers here. If so, this book is written for people like us, all of us. Not just to warn you, although this book contains warnings. 
and not just to heap commands on you, although it does have important commands, but ultimately what this book gives us is a necessary view of Jesus. It's no accident that some of the most famous words in this book are Hebrews 12.2. Look to Jesus! the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Hebrews knows that correct theology is not just a bunch of irrelevant knowledge in our heads. That is the real engine that produces godliness. That's why our author's answer to his reader's spiritual immaturity isn't just telling them what to do, but telling them where to look and who to look to. Friend, wherever we are today, we will benefit greatly if we, we ponder the person and work of Jesus. He saved us by his death. He lives forever in his resurrection. He stands before the Father as our high priest and mediator. He enables our obedience. He gives us community that encourages us to persevere to the end. He gives us a new and better rest. He is sovereign over all things. He reveals the Father perfectly, and He truly secures His people forever. And if today you feel like the Hebrews and you feel drift in your life, if you look at your life and you say, I am mired in sin right now, I am mired in something I know I ought not be doing, in Christ's name, repent. If you are weak and beleaguered, if you see your life in, in spiritual neglect, look to Jesus. Turn back to Jesus. Get rid of whatever is corrupting you. Turn back to Jesus and draw near to him. And be intentional about keeping him always before our eyes. By intentionally cultivating our spiritual lives. By thinking about who he is and what he has done for us. By being regular in prayer by not just reading, but trying to obey His Word, by drawing near to His community. These are the tools He has given us to guard us, to keep us going in the right direction, to keep us from drifting and falling away. Like Jesus and all those who've trusted in Him before us, friends, let us keep walking by faith. Let us not fall away, and we will inherit the promises because the same God who inspired this book and who calls on us to endure to the end is the same God who promises, who swears an oath in this book to eternally secure his people and bring us safely home if we have trusted him. If you're not a believer, I, I plead with you, repent, and you'll find mercy in Christ. If you're a believer today, examine yourself. If you know Christ, I want you not to be depressed here. I want you to be encouraged. In the end, because Philippians 1.6 says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ.